You're listening to Western Sydney Health Check, a podcast talking all things health, providing current and accurate healthcare information for the community and our staff. I'm Sia. And I'm Harrison. And we'll be taking you through this podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the latest episode of Western Sydney Health Check. This time of year is, of course, associated with Christmas, and for us Aussies, it's all about that summer break. But on December 12th, we also observe a lesser-known celebration, Nurse Practitioner Day. It was on December 12 in the year 2000 that the first nurse practitioners were endorsed in Australia, Sue Dennison and Jane O'Connell. 20 years on from this historic date, there are now more than 2,000 nurse practitioners, or NPs, endorsed in Australia. But what exactly is an NP and what makes them so special? Well, joining me today to discuss that are two NPs from Western Sydney, Cathy Cable and Donna Tilly. Cathy and Donna, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. All right. Well, to start with, I thought it'd be great to get an idea of your roles in the district. So, Cathy, let's start with you, shall we? I understand you work with kidneys. Is that right? I do. It's one of the organs I work with. Um, (laughs) So I'm the transplant nephrology nurse practitioner. And so, yes, I work with kidneys, but also um, we're part of the National Pancreas Transplant Unit. Um, So... My patients are from all over, uh, not just in our area. So Westmead really specialises in pancreas? In pancreas, yes. Okay, interesting. And have done, um, they established the unit in uh, 1997. Wow. We did our first kidney pancreas and Uh uh, she only died a couple of years ago. So for a disease, type 1 diabetes that, you know, kills a lot of people mm. in their 30s and 40s. And once they hit dialysis, their life expectancy of uh, living five years is less than 40%. So wow. to give them a transplant where they last 20 years and have a good quality of life mm. is, is the go for them. That's incredible. My mum was a nurse, so I guess... Meant to be. Meant to be. That's brilliant. No. Well, thanks for sharing that, Cathy, and, and how about yourself? Donna, I understand that you are the only NP in sexual health in New South Wales. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So uh, the nurse practitioner really hasn't uh, kind of taken off in sexual health yet the way it has, say, in emergency or ICU. We're a much smaller specialty. But I think, uh, you know, all the sexual health centres really would benefit from having a nurse practitioner. I was lucky someone had trailblazed before me. So Karen Biggs was a nurse practitioner here and then she had a sea change and moved up to Queensland. And so the position became available and I mm. moved into Western Sydney. But I, um, I'd i been working in the city clinics for a while and Western Sydney is much more exciting area to work in in terms of diversity <laughs> uh-huh. of people. Um, they've got diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences. You come across so many unique situations. Um, I've worked in Fairfield in the past, which mm-hmm. I really loved. So it was actually good to get back into a more diverse area by coming into Western Sydney. Brilliant. Well, we're very thankful to have you here. What sort of role does a nurse practitioner fill in in a sexual health space? Yeah, so sexual health, there are um, about 17 publicly funded sexual health clinics in New South Wales. And what that means is patients can attend even if they don't have Medicare. So the focus is to try and encourage screening and testing for sexually transmissible infections like chlamydia, gonorrhea, 
um, syphilis and also HIV, bloodborne viruses, Hep B, Hep mm. C. And so people, we really try and encourage testing because that's the only way that people will know they have infections and get treated and managed. Mm-hmm. And we also want to be able to provide a really safe space for people because unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma and discrimination in yes. the community, a lot of misinformation. Um, and so people can come to a sexual health clinic and know that they can actually address their issues, talk mm. about what's concerning them. And often it's um, more than just the the physical health. It's a lot of to course. do with the social, emotional um, context of their lives. Mm. Um We've been really lucky over COVID actually at our clinic too here in Western Sydney because many of the clinics scaled down quite significantly during COVID and redeployed their staff. And here at Western Sydney, we've actually kept going with the sexual health work with a few small scale backs just in terms of not having large volumes of people in the clinic. Sure. But the prevention work, things like um, uh, PrEP, which is HIV, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's not a lot of GPs in our district who do who do that or who prescribe that. The comfort levels are quite low. The knowledge, you know, needs to come up. Say compared to uh, a GP in Darlinghurst. Sure. Um, so we've been able to still provide all of that work over COVID, which has been really important mm. for people as well. That's fantastic. And when you're talking about looking at people's health holistically, I imagine. With the diversity in Western Sydney, there'd be a more complex array of cultural um, attitudes and stigmas from all different cultures and religions and backgrounds that would contribute to somebody's complex relationship with sexual health. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, and one of the issues there is um, not only stigma from outside, perhaps the family or um, people not wanting to tell their friendship groups about their sexuality, perhaps in the case of a man who has sex with men, but also internalised stigma. So Mm. people then feel stigmatised within themselves, lose their confidence, um, don't feel empowered necessarily to take care of their health sometimes don't know kind of where to go because they feel that they'll be judged by other people. We know mental health can be quite poor among um, kind of uh, gay, lesbian, transgender communities as well. Mm. So providing that care is really essential. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I had one story of a a young man who had actually, um, I think it was like a uh, you know, just a skin infection, um, sexually transmitted infection, but his family um, wouldn't let him use the fridge and the cutlery anymore. Wow. So he was eating out oh because they thought that they might catch something from him. Uh-huh. So we're also lucky to have social workers at mm. our service um, because they can help the person kind of rebuild parts of their lives that will help them get back to kind of a sense of normalcy and and perhaps even move forward with a bit more empowerment. And community education must be so important then as well. It is. We have a health promotion unit as well that do a lot of work um, in community and we do community outreach in testing Mm -hmm. um, at different events and with different communities as well. But, yeah, there's a lot. But, um, you know, there's always more that needs to be done. Of course. Yeah. I was wondering if I could throw a different question at you, Donna. Could you explain to us what is the difference between a nurse practitioner and, say, a registered nurse or even a doctor? Yeah, so I think nurse practitioners really are a team member who use their expertise and their experience to provide 
kind of a high level of care. Mm. And I often think it's partly the person and partly the role. So the person bit is where, you know, you've been working in the area for a long time. You're very passionate about the work. You've gained a lot of knowledge and skills. So you can bring that because you really do need that that very um, knowledgeable clinical background. You need to know all about the medicines you're prescribing, um, you know, uh, the conditions and the, and the causes, the pathophysiology, but also the role itself of nurse practitioner within a structure and organisation is to be innovative and involved, to be doing clinical work, but also education and research and that striving and curiosity to always um, find something better or build a new network mm. or, um, you know, provide kind of some external advice or information like the podcast, those these <laughs> kind of things um, that always looking for those opportunities to improve awareness or knowledge of what we do and what might help a patient as well. So I think that purely looking at it like what's the difference between a nurse practitioner and a, and a registrar doctor, so one of the kind of doctors who are training, that's often I guess a comparison that's used. Uh-huh. Um, and... I think, you know, after having done it for a while, I don't know if Kathy kind of agrees, is that you can't really compare because nursing as a, a discipline involves a lot more um, psychosocial training. We have engaged with patients throughout our careers kind of on a on a different level. We're not sure. always looking at the medical problem as the, the first problem, mm. um, although it may indeed be significant, particularly in the case of transplant, of course. <laughs> but I think we come with an extra skill set and then organisations really benefit from having people in the organisation that have our skills and experience and interest in doing better. Mm. So it's a very all-encompassing role, really, but it, it, it brings a lot of experience. You, you need a lot of experience to bring to that role. Yeah. So for you, Kathy, what was your journey? How long were you involved in, in transplantation nursing before you decided to take on this bigger opportunity, I guess? I started as a new graduate in the uh, transplant unit in 1990 mm. and I then went through the... I was the educator um, for the unit and then relieved as a CNC position and it was during one of those, it was about, by that stage, it was about 2001. We had a registrar who was unable to um, get into the country for six months. So we had no one to run the transplant clinic. Wow. At a registrar level. And so I was able to step up the CNC role a little bit, but I couldn't do any of the prescribing that, that I had to get an intern to do the sort of medical <laughs> side of it um, with direction from me on the clinical side of it. Wow. And it was then that um, people like Jane uh, were um, being endorsed as nurse practitioners. And at that stage, the Department of Health, they were a department rather than a ministry back then, <laughs> um, had money for nurse practitioners in the various areas. And once um, anyone who's ever worked with Jeremy Chapman knows that if there's money follows a program, then he'll he'll be on to it. So <laughs> um, it was actually through encouragement from him that I ended up uh, try, going for endorsement. So I did it both ways. Uh, in those days, you could do it through... Um, your just your clinical practice and sit a clinical viva in at the department 
And so I managed to get through that, but I decided I wanted the extra um, master's program anyway, so for the pharmacology and um, some of the medical imaging side of things that uh, that I needed to do in that role. So I then um, got the master's as well. So wow. funnily enough, I was endorsed on the 1st of April, so April Fool's Day in <laughs> 2004. <laughs> so there's a bit of a, an Irish background there, I guess. But the fact that I, I registered, like I was endorsed on two fronts, I guess, mm. I had to be sure to be sure. So it was appropriate that it was April Fool's Day. So And so did that and, mean then that you were able to do things like prescribe medication? Yeah, I can now prescribe and... and um, manage the medications are very important for transplant recipients. Mm. So a lot of it is um, juggling their medications according to toxicity or rejection episodes. So um, instead of having to get the uh, resident or an intern who hasn't heard of most of the medications <laughs> to prescribe it, um, I can now prescribe most of them for all of them for inpatients and um yeah. So you're you you were quite early in the piece, I suppose, um, Donna. You've come to it a little bit later. What was your path like? And and maybe for somebody who's listening and thinking, oh, this sounds interesting. What's it? What's the actual path to becoming a nurse practitioner? Yeah. So everyone has a different path. That is the interesting part of it. So for me, I was working in um, the hospital system. I was actually working in rehab and aged care. Um, when I started studying um, counselling and did a grad dip in counselling, I was really looking for something to kind of combine and integrate the nursing and the communication work. Um, and I actually had this folder of things I was interested in <laughs> and there was a brochure for family planning in my folder and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go and do the family planning course. And I was always interested in... Um, you know, women's rights and things um, along that line. And uh, I did the family planning course. It was a six-week face-to-face course, which was, you know, it probably doesn't exist anymore, I think, in a (laughs) face-to-face way. Um, Not this year. And then I got a a job at family planning straight after that course um, and then kind of just kept... um, moving, stayed with that organisation for quite a long time um, and then moved into sexual health because I realised there was a bit of a gap. There, There is potential for sexual health and reproductive and sexual health to be kind of integrated a little bit more across our system, but um, sexual health has more, I guess, of a focus on infectious disease. Sure. Uh, and I thought there were gaps in my knowledge. So I went and got a job in a sexual health service and then... Uh, became the educator and then a clinical nurse consultant. Um, I did a Master's of Sexual Health, which is actually based on the clinical um, academic unit at Western Sydney in our sexual health service. And um, that's fantastic because it was so uh, practical. You did things like lab prac up here at uh, Westmead ICPMR lab and mm. got to see like how tests were done. Um, there was a practical component, um, a lot of a lot of background, a lot of big focus on public health um, initiatives as well as individual um, sexual health, sexual infections, HIV. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I moved districts to a different district um, and did women's health and um, sexual health work. And then this position came up for nurse practitioner here at Western Sydney and I jumped at that and um, did my master's in nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And that was great. It was very hard work, but um, 
it really opened my eyes to um, to the role, I think. You know, if you if you're not uh, in a nurse practitioner role or haven't really thought kind of about what it might mean, university really encourages you to think about your own role in the health system and what okay. it means um, to be a nurse practitioner and to develop your own philosophy around your work. So um, that's my journey. So I've been endorsed as a nurse practitioner for one year. Uh-huh. Um, now, so almost a year, yeah. But you were here with the district while you were studying, is that right? That's right. So there's um, positions called transitional nurse practitioners. So the, the district um, will employ somebody as a n- transitional nurse practitioner and then support them to attend university um, studies, so with study leave. Um, I was able to get a scholarship from New South Wales Health as well and so studied for three years and then automatically you enter into your nurse practitioner role with your prescribing Great. prescribing rights that come with that. And then we've been lucky in sexual health. Partly we're community, so we do get to do community prescribing. And um, just this year on April 1, incidentally, must be an <laughs> interesting date, um, nurse practitioners have been able to prescribe medication for HIV patients, which is going mm. to really increase the ability for people um, to access access care in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think m- more and more that will kind of move out into the community as it becomes more of a chronic disease as well. Mm-hmm. So looking back on your career so far, are there any um, achievements that really stand out for you or maybe people who you've really been able to make a difference in their life? Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about that and it's really... I think um, it, certainly in sexual health, because people aren't critically ill um, most of the time. It's mm. very, very rare that I'll see someone who who's kind of quite unwell. Um, and so it's really the conversations that make what might seem like a small difference but can really change people's perspective in how they feel about themselves. Some people, they may get diagnosed with what we might see as quite simple, so say they get diagnosed with chlamydia, which is the most commonly notifiable sexually transmitted infection, over 100,000 new infections a year, very easily treated with antibiotics. But it can change people's self-perception mm-hmm. um, of, you know, being someone who's got a, a, a sexual disease or VD or however they think of that. Mm. And so to be able to kind of offer compassion, information, really listen to their concerns, I think kind of almost on a daily basis, I feel like I'm making some difference into how people kind of see themselves or respond or their trust in the health service that they might come back again. We do some work with the Aboriginal Health Unit and we're building that up more and more. And we do cervical screening for Aboriginal women and talk to them about sexual health. And we're hoping that will just snowball as young women come in, realise that it's safe, it's not going to hurt, they have complete control over their body, whether they want to have the test, um, you know, or whether they just want to come and talk about it and find out more. And so all of those things make a difference. I mean, I I saw a young woman who said, you know, her last cervical screening test was six years ago, it was terrible experience. Um, And I talked to her about kind of all of her options. And after we sat down, had a chat, she went, that's fine, I'll have my test. 
And so, and, and it was quick and comfortable and it takes a few minutes. And so she'll be able to not only have her result um, and, you know, if there's any issues, she'll be able to get them addressed if there's any precancerous changes. Um, but she'll be able to tell her friends that it's okay. And so just addressing all those individual barriers with people uh, I think is really important. That's what I... And coming at it, it, it sounds like from that nursing perspective where it's about the patient and not just the disease um, is going to make a big difference to people, especially those who've had a negative experience in the past. That's right. People need time. Um, I'm sure you find that, Kathy, too. People need time to just um, know that you're there to listen to them. And time is difficult in the health system of obviously. You know, we have resources. People need to be seen. You can't spend all your time with one person when there's a whole waiting room of other people. But it doesn't take much to give people a little bit of space to just talk about what brought them today rather than what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And for yourself, Kat, yourself, Kathy, uh, you've shared one fantastic story of a woman who received a, a pancreas transplant. I imagine that you've got countless stories of people who've had a big difference in their life through transplant, but are there any others that really stand out? I guess it's um, looking at some of our young women who are told that they're infertile before they have a transplant and seeing them um, then go through a pregnancy and they spend a lot of their pregnancy near us (laughs) because (laughs) they're um, always at high risk. But um, it's seeing them come back to clinic with their babies and, you know, feeling complete and uh, seeing that change. And I guess from the other end, one of the most rewarding uh, things is that quite often with our patients, once you have renal failure, you're on the renal train. So transplants don't last forever. So they might have a transplant and then go back on dialysis and then Mm. have another transplant or they um, might have a transplant and then uh, decide that they don't want in, you know, once their transplant fails, that um, they're looking at end of life care. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most rewarding parts of my role is that they engage with my role um, throughout the whole transition. So oh, wow. I get to be there for the delivery of their young ones and watch their family grow up, watch them achieve their goals. But they also often come home to um, to be palliated and actually a lot of our patients actually get admitted uh, for end-of-life care in, mm. in the transplant unit because they've grown up with, uh, with the staff there. And I don't think it, you know, they can't show their gratitude in any greater way um, than trusting us with their... Then not only their life, but then their death. Wow, that must so. be so emotional for you, for these people you've known for so long. Yeah, it is, but it's nice. To, well, I guess it means that they know that they've got someone taking care of them and our um, supportive care and palliative care resources at Westmead are awesome. Mm. And um, not only do they help the patients through that, but they help us, you know, achieve a good outcome for the patients, but they're also there to back us up when we... Uh, have a bit of kink in the armour. Mm-hmm. So it's it's probably the most rewarding part of it. Yeah, it's great to hear the support that's available for you, but just yeah. that whole journey of care for the patient, that's quite remarkable. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to end on a lighter note. 
um, Donna, I'm aware that you have a hidden talent as a banjolele player. Now, for those of us like myself that are completely in the dark about this, can you shed some light? What is a banjolele? So a banjolele is a cross between a banjo and a ukulele. So Mm -hmm. it's tuned like a ukulele, but it has a skin like a banjo, so a really nice tone. And I actually found this um, vintage banjolele in a guitar shop. Um, It's beautiful, um, beautiful like uh, wood and little inlaid pearl. And I've just been in love with it ever since. It's from the 1950s, but it's a George Formby brand. So he was a very famous English ukulele player kind of in, into war, I think, wow. in, the, in the UK. Okay. So, I'm um, sure I could ask I love my, my grandma about that. <laughs> he, she would know George Formby for okay. sure. Yeah. And when do you get a chance to use your banjolele prowess? So I have a duo band with a snare drummer. And we go out busking and we've played at ukulele festivals. and uh, Ukulele festivals? We have. That's the, a thing. The Blue Mountains have one of the biggest ukulele festivals in the country. Wow. So doesn't very surprise me. Close <laughs> and local. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I've been part of some ukulele groups and, um, and also just uh, other, like, musical open mic nights and things like that. Just get out and about perform and have some fun and it really takes your mind off it's nice to have something different yeah. to work mm. yeah absolutely yeah, a lot of fun the busking <laughs> nurse yeah. all right what, what's your duo called and we can look you up are you on facebook we're not on the socials oh, yet no. no but we're called chickadee fiasco we do a bit of country rockabilly and i write some songs and so we'll eventually get out there okay and when when's your next performance at when's your next festival? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure because Blue Mountains had a lot of restrictions for this coming year, so you'd have to watch out for me in 2022. Okay. <laughs> watch this space. Or uh, or wander around the city and you might see me out in Hyde Park or the Rocks somewhere. Okay, I make we sure can set you up the front of the hospital. <laughs> I could do a fundraiser <laughs> exactly. out there. Perfect. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure. Kathy Cable, Donna Tilly, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, remember, you can uh, catch up on the previous episodes and read more about this at thepulse.org.au. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Western Sydney Local Health District. For the latest news, visit us at thepulse.org.au.